Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to talk about dating, and dating and marriage specifically. And Lynn and I, my wife, we're talking. She's going to come on stage and help with the Q&A when this is done. Driving over here, we both went to Samford. We got in a ministry called, got involved in a ministry called Campus Outreach. And I don't think that either one of us, when we first got involved in this ministry, the main thing that we were looking for was dating advice. And yet, in hindsight, 25 plus years later, looking back, maybe we were both already Christians. Maybe the most important things that we learned from Campus Outreach that have had the biggest impact on our life were the, was the advice about dating and marriage. And so maybe that will be the same thing uh, for you tonight here. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, and let's start in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God has a plan for marriage. God's the one that invents marriage. We're going to see that. So the first point is just you need to have an attitude of trust going into dating and going into marriage. Uh, God invented marriage. If God wants you to be married, He will get you married in the right time to the right person. You don't have to panic. You don't have to try to micromanage the process. I'm not saying there's nothing for you to do. Part of what we're going to talk about tonight are the things that you should be doing. But it's so helpful to remember, especially in our day and age, we just think about what how controversial marriage is in our culture, is it not? And the definition of marriage and who can get married and all that. It's really helpful to remember there's one creator. He made everything. He made you. He made men. He made women. He made marriage. And if you want to understand how it works, go to his word and trust him. Okay. Now, Adam starts out as the first human being. He's all alone, but it doesn't stay there. But I want you to see what Adam was doing in a sense. Look at verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, we're looking at the very first dating relationship. And let me just say this about dating. The word dating is not in the Bible. Okay, it's, it, it doesn't mean it's a bad word. It's just not biblically defined, so we have to define it. And here's my personal definition of dating. It's the process you go through to find a mate. So you may say, well, I grew up in a homeschool family and we didn't believe in dating. We believe in courtship or whatever. Great. That's just your definition of dating. Okay? And, and culture has a different definition of dating. The process that you go through to find a mate. That's what we're talking about. So in, in the most loose sense, you can even say what Adam and Eve went through was a very short dating process. And what I want you to see is both Adam and Eve, before they had a relationship with one another, they had a relationship with God. God made Adam first. And he's there in the garden working, naming animals, doing stuff with God. And then when Eve was first made, Adam was knocked out cold asleep. And God was over here making Eve. Her first relationship wasn't with Adam. It was with God. A little side note here, okay? I heard somebody else say this, and I love it because it's so true. The longer I live, the truer it is. Men, we were asleep when women got made. And we woke up, and we saw the woman, and we were very excited, but we were confused. And that pretty much defines our relationship Thousands of years later. Women, if you're ever wondering, I wonder what the guy's thinking. He's probably thinking, I don't fully understand her, but I really like her. That's, that tends to be what we think. Okay? 
okay? Before you can have a great relationship with a best friend of the opposite sex, which is really what marriage is supposed to be, you need to have a great relationship with God. Does that mean that two non-Christians can't have a good marriage? No, it doesn't mean that. It's just a lot more rare, and it's a lot more hard, and it's a lot bumpier ride. The best way to have a great dating relationship and a great marriage relationship is to start not even thinking about dating, not thinking about marriage, but to build a firm foundation with God before you even go into the dating process. And, and, and part, I'm going to explain more about why that's important as we go. But part of what, and you all probably heard other people say this, I think Jordan Peterson has been famous for saying this recently on the Internet, although there were people saying it long before him. When you're thinking about who's the perfect mate that I should be out there looking for, what you really ought to be thinking about is, how can I become the perfect mate? Rather than trying to define the person I want to go get, become the person that would attract that kind of person. Work more on developing yourself. And so much of that, certainly for Christians, is developing a deep, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord before you try to develop a deep, personal, intimate relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. So, love God. Love God more than you love your spouse, more than you love your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Foundational. Third point. Have patience for marriage. Wait on God. He has a good plan. He has a good timing. Part of what I love about this first passage is Adam was there. He was all alone. He had a relationship with God, but there were no other humans. He had grizzly bears. He had porcupines. He had dolphins. Okay, But he didn't have any other friends. And he didn't have to whine. He didn't have to complain. He didn't even have to pray about it. God was the one that took notice. Adam's all alone. Because think about... The true God, the biblical God, the Christian God, He's a relational being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Trinity. Our God is a relational God and He wants us to be relational beings. He's not anti-relationship. He's not like if you want to be a strong Christian, go be a monk and live in the desert all by yourself. That's bad theology. God's like, no, no. You want to be a great Christian, live in great community. And nine times out of ten, that means getting a great marriage. God's for it. So you can trust Him. You can wait. You can be patient. Adam didn't have to beg and plead, God, this isn't fair. I don't like this. Why have you left me alone with all these grizzly bears? God was the one that took notice and said, it's not best for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, fit for him. God took the initiative. Uh, Just a brief bit of our story. We were not planning to go to Samford University. My wife grew up very poor. She was planning to go to another university, and she had a full ride. That's pretty good. Poor kids, okay? I had been my whole life trying to go into the Navy, really wanted to get in the Naval Academy. My whole life was about, I'm going to try to go be Tom Cruise. I, you know, I grew up on the 86 movie, right? I wanted to be the next Top Gun fighter pilot. And our senior year, and we didn't know each other. We lived in different states. We both basically, she throws her scholarship in the trash. I throw all my Navy stuff in the trash. And for different reasons, we both decided to go to Stanford University. If God wants to get you with somebody, he can work it out. You don't have to micromanage the process. You just need what we were doing, and even our stupid, immature high school way is we were trying to fumble forward and walking in faithfulness with God, and he basically made our paths cross. Does that make sense? Trust him. You don't have to force it. Now, the first time that my wife and I ever went on a date, I was 20. She's older than I am. She always loves me to remind everybody of that, okay? And um, we went on this first date, but I was still fairly young, and so... Literally, I asked her on the date. She says, yes, I'm really excited. But before I go on the date, I don't know if you've ever had experience like this, it's one of those things where I felt like, okay, I'm a good Presbyterian. 
it seemed to me like God was speaking to me. And what I mean by that is not an audible voice or a light, but a, a thought in my mind that I know I didn't put there. <laughs> and it was like, you're not mature enough to be in a serious, committed relationship yet. I was not excited about that news. We went out. We had a great night on the date. And as I'm literally dropping her off in front of her sorority house, I was like, hey, uh, you know, I don't think I'm in a place where I can really get in any kind of committed relationship. And she's a senior. She's about to graduate. So she was in a different place. And she can be a little blunt sometimes. It's one of the things I like about her. Uh, there's not much guesswork about what she's thinking. She's like, well, then what are we doing then? And I was like, you're right. I'm going to back off and give you space. Now, I didn't like that. She was very popular. There was a line of guys that wanted to date her. And so then, you know, I, I was in the front of the line, and I took a step back. And other guys, you know, the sharks were circling. And I'd see her talking to other guys in the food court sometimes, and I'd be angry, and I'd want to punch a hole in their face or in the mailbox or something. <laughs> uh, you know, but I'd go back to my dorm room, and I remember I'd say, I need to pray. I need to spend time with God. I'd open my Bible. I just, and I couldn't even think. I was just like, Lena, Lena. I'm just, you know, I, I, was, I was overwhelmed. But really what brought me through that time of waiting and patience was this. I started meditating on Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the good of those that love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And I was meditating and trying to apply it to my exact situation of dating. And I was like, God, I'm pretty convinced for lots of reasons you don't want me to be single. So that means you want me to get married one day. And up until this point, the girl that I've met that I think would be best for me to get married to is Lena. But I feel like you're saying, I can't date her right now. I can't date anybody. And so as I'm well, then how would Romans 8, 28 apply? And I was like, there's only two things it can mean. Either that means you're going to bring me somebody else later who will actually be better than Lena. And I was like, that doesn't seem possible, but, you know, God can do anything, right? Or one day you're going to bring her back. And now we know the end of the story. But I had to meditate on truth and wrestle to get to a point of peace. And that's part of what I'm saying. Part of what helped me do that is by God's grace, I had a foundation of a good relationship with God. Does that make sense? Build your relationship with God first. Be patient. Do your part. And, and here's just another kind of a side note when we talk about patience for marriage. Don't get into a serious, committed relationship until you're at a place of maturity where you could seriously consider and talk about marriage. You understand what I mean by that? And, and I can't prove this point 100% biblically. But it's at least common sense wisdom. I'm all for dating. Go to the sorority party. Go to homecoming. You know? Hang out with the opposite. I'm all for that. But the whole me, you, exclusive, dating, steady, Facebook official, I don't even know what you call it now, right? But it's like, we're hanging out, and you're not allowed to hang out with anybody else, and neither am I. Don't do that until marriage is a real possibility. Because if you do do that, you have about a 99.9% chance of either wasting a lot of money on somebody 25 years later, you won't even remember the last name, or just getting your heart broken and breaking their heart in the process, or just wasting a lot of time, or just getting into a lot of sexual sin, or most likely all the above. So just save yourself the heartache. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying stay out of the super, hyper-serious, committed relationship until it's like marriage is a real possibility. You're mature enough. Okay? Um, part of what is wrong with our cultural form of dating is really starting in about middle school for a lot of us. We start getting into miniature marriages, and then we experience miniature divorces. Do you understand what I mean by this? 
right? You first, I don't know what it looks like now. I haven't been in that game for a long time. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm so happy to be out of it. But you know, it's like middle school, you like the girl. I'm going to tell it from the guy's perspective. I've been a guy my whole life, all right? You know, you, you meet the girl. She's cute. You want to date and go to the movies. We hold hands. Maybe you play spin the bottle. You kiss her a little bit. It lasts for two months. You break up with her. She cries. You're too cool. You don't care. You know, high school, it's a little more serious. You're really smitten. You date. It lasts for six months. There's extra kissing. This time, she dumps you. You're heartbroken. Okay? Then you get to college. Now you're a big boy. You can really date, right? And you're talking about love, and you're going on vacations with each other and all the stupidity. And a year later, after you've already been talking about what would our last name sound like and how many kids you want to have, one of you breaks the other person's heart, and it feels like a little marriage and a little divorce. You understand what I'm saying? You realize what you're training yourself to do? That just when you throw in the ceremony of I say yes, I do, before God and everybody else, when it gets hard, and it will get hard. You've trained yourself just to bail out. You've trained yourself, I got a parachute called divorce, and if it gets hard enough, I bail. The more you can say, I'm not doing that. I'm not playing with this Velcro. I'm going to try not to use this piece of Velcro called my heart until it's time for it to latch on forever and ever. It's not a guarantee that things will work, but it will go better. Patience for marriage. Point four, I think, if you're trying to keep up. Passion in marriage. Okay, passion in marriage. The woman walks up to the man. Remember, this whole scene is happening, and they're both butt naked. Okay? Verse 23, and the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, we don't know for sure. We do know this is the first recorded language ever spoken by a human being. And it's either a song or it's poetry. I won't do a show of hands, but I wonder how many guys in here have ever written a song or written a poem. But just imagine, if you've been hanging out all day with a bunch of porcupines, and then God said, hey Adam, take a nap. And when you wake up, buddy, I got a real big surprise. And you wake up, and there's a naked woman. You'd be wanting to write poetry too, right? Like, God, this is the best gift ever. Here's my point. God is not anti-passion. God is not anti-romance. God is not anti-sex. God is not anti-physical attraction. Again, where did it all come from? He invented it. He's for it. Now, what we know is that our culture has hyper-exalted sexuality and romance and physical attraction, right? It's like that's almost all they want to talk about. All the magazine covers are about. And it can seep into the church. But then sometimes the church, in trying to be super spiritual, and I don't want to be like the world, like we don't even care about physical attraction anymore. It's just a lie. Yes, you do. And it's okay. It just can't be the priority. The number one priority has to be godliness. But if you're like, I met this great godly girl, and she's also cute. Go for it, buddy. You know, if you're old enough and mature enough. We've had the fun experience of, you know, walking through, buying a car with four of our children. And, you know, I'm sure you all remember going through this, maybe your parent. And they save some of their money, and we give them some money. You know, at first they're like, I want a car that looks really cool. And I'm like, listen, I, I want you to have a car that looks really cool too. But more important than looking cool is it's got to run. It's got to have an engine. Now, if you can get the cool-looking car with a good engine that's going you know, low mileage, great. But if you've got to get a crappy-looking car 
that's got a great engine and low mileage, that's better than getting the cool-looking car that the engine breaks after a year and you got to sell it. Understand? Go after the character of the heart. You know, one of the things Pastor Reader used to say, he said, listen, when we talk about physical attraction, gravity wins. It's, it's going to be a steady decline. But character and godliness can go up. So again, don't throw physical attraction out the window when you're thinking about dating, but make sure character is king. It matters most. I just, I have multiple friends that I won't do this because this would be weird and embarrassing, but I could show you pictures of them, and they are both like beautiful people. Like they could be models. But I know them well enough to talk to them. You know, we, and it's like, how's your sex life? And they're like, what sex life? Because their marriage is so miserable. What good is it to marry a model if it's going to be so miserable you don't even talk to each other? You understand what I'm saying? Prioritize godliness. Point five, there's a pattern for marriage. Okay, There's a pattern for marriage, and we need to obey God and submit to it. It's one man, one woman for life. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There was no mother or father at this point. Why does it say that? Because God was saying from the very beginning, I'm setting a pattern for all humanity. Here's the norm. A mom and a dad have a kid. The kid grows up and gets to a point of maturity and gets launched out and finds one other. The boy finds a girl. They get married, and they're supposed to stay together for life. That's the pattern. Doesn't matter what culture says. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. We've got to stick to what the Bible says. Now listen, that ought to set the pace in a sense for what kind of godliness you're looking for in a spouse. Women, I mean, and, and, and more of the pattern, we won't take a lot of time to get into this, is men are supposed to lead. Men are supposed to be the spiritual head. Guys, you want to be a good husband one day? Have you ever led... A guy spiritually. You ever discipled or mentored somebody or led a Bible study? You think that's hard and complicated? What, try leading a woman and a whole family. Get some experience on some guinea pigs. Right? Some stupid freshman in college you don't really care about anyway. You care about him a little bit, right? You understand what I'm saying. But you don't have to be married to him. Learn to be a leader. And women, look for a leader. Look for a man. Look for a man that you'll be willing to follow who's going to be a gracious leader, a kind leader, a warm leader, an inviting leader, not a domineering, dictatorial leader. But honestly, nine times out of ten, that's not the problem most men today. It's that they're passive. And they're lazy and they're pushovers. Try to find somebody that fits into this pattern. Okay, Now, part of what you see here it helps to have the Bible, but it also helps to have a living, breathing example. Supposed to, the idea was you grew up in a good family. You have a godly daddy, a godly mommy, and if you're a little girl, you're thinking, I want to marry somebody just like my dad one day. And if you're a little boy, you're thinking, I want to marry somebody just like my mom one day. And I, I want to have a marriage like them. But the stats show that that's almost the total opposite is true today. And I won't do it in this room but I've done it in other rooms like this. I mean, most of the ministry that I do today with students is either at Briarwood or Sanford University, good old Baptist school in Birmingham, Alabama, belt buckle of the Bible Belt. And I've done this numerous times. Where I'll say, if you want your marriage 
to be like your parents' marriage, stand up. About 10% is usually what we get. My wife and I do a lot of kind of pre-marriage counseling. And I can't tell you the amount of times where, where, where we're meeting these people. I grew up in this big church. She grew up in that big church. Everything. And then we start meeting with them. We're like, well, tell us about your parents' marriage. And they're like, oh, yeah, my parents don't talk to each other. I mean, they're not divorced, but they, they sleep in different bedrooms. My dad is nicer to the dog than his. We don't have good models. By God's grace, I had, I still have, they're still alive. Great parents, a godly example. They weren't perfect, but they were, they were really good. My wife came from a, from a broken non-Christian family. And one of the things, when she was at a conference hearing some teaching like this, one of the things she did, and this is just one of the things that attracted to me, to her, she was so wise, is she had a woman that was kind of mentoring her. She ended up living them for a while. And she basically said to them, I want you all to be kind of like my adopted spiritual parents. And so if a guy wants to pursue me, it's kind of like he's got to talk to y'all. It's good. And so when we started getting serious about dating, she went to that couple and said, hey, if this couple doesn't sign off, we can't get married. And I went to my parents and I said, hey, mom and dad, y'all know me. I want y'all to get to know Lena. I'm really falling for her. I think she's the one. But I'm getting so emotional, I don't trust myself. And so what I want you to do is hang out with me. Y'all don't, you don't really have to hang out with me. You already know me. Hang out with us together. Hang out with her. Get to know her. And if at any point y'all think it's a bad idea, I'll walk away. Now, that was a little extreme. I tend to be too extreme in my life sometimes. But the point was this. Both of those couples, godly wise couples, said, we think this is a good thing for y'all to get married. And the first three years of our marriage were super hard. And one of the best things that practically helped us get through it in the dark night of our marriage was, you know what, we weren't just two young, hormonal 20-something that just decided we got to get married. Four of the godliest, wisest people chimed in. It gave us confidence to stick it out. Does that make sense? And I tell people the first three years of our marriage were really hard. Last 20 plus have been pretty good, you know, so it's worth it. Pre-engagement counseling. This is a side note. This is not a Bible verse, but this could change your life. A lot of people do pre-marriage counseling, right? You've probably heard of that. Okay? I've got some books back there I'll mention before I'm done. But the problem is, guys, here's a little secret. When you buy that engagement ring and you put it on that finger... You just lost control of the relationship. You know who's in charge? Her mom. <laughs> Her mom's been dreaming about this day for 22 years or whatever. And dresses will be bought. And flowers, you know, buku of money will be spent. And at some point in the pre-marriage counseling, you start thinking, I made a mistake. Most guys and girls don't have the spiritual gumption to back out of that point. I, I, know, I know multiple people. I don't even have to think of, well, there's just one example. I know multiple people that are divorced now that will tell me, I knew it was a bad idea before we got married. And you're like, why? Dude, $10,000 had already been spent. 400 invitations. I don't want to look stupid. Well, that's a good decision. Now you get to see your kids on the weekend. So what I'm telling you is do this. I'm trying to help. Do pre-engagement counseling. Before you buy the ring, 
He's like, well, how do we know it's time? When you're both like, I love you and I want to get married. Before you go ring shopping, get an older, godlier, wiser couple to sit down with you and ask you like every hard question they can think of. Almost like they're trying to break you up. Not really, but you understand what I mean. To, to test you. And if they're like, yeah, we, it seems real, go for it. Then go for it. Because otherwise, it's like you're playing Russian roulette with the rest of your life. It's not worth it. Okay? Um, get people. And listen, don't, don't wait until it's time to buy the ring. Dating community. Listen, sexual sin can be so uh, damaging for so many reasons. But maybe a bigger danger for couples than even sexual sin is when you just get isolated. Y'all know how that happens? It's like Fred used to be my best friend. Fred started hanging out with Sarah and I ain't seen Fred anymore. He goes to me all the time. He never texts me. He never wants to hang out with the boys. That ain't good. They're probably not just having Bible study together all the time. Stay in community so other people can see your life and speak to you about it. Okay. And then pleasure and marriage. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It says before in verse 24, They shall become one flesh. And this is talking about sex. <laughs> God is for sex. God made your bodies with nerve endings and certain parts to respond in certain ways. He's not, if, when he came around the corner and Adam and Eve were there making love, God wasn't like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? Get off of her, Adam. He made him to do that. He's, he's pro-sex. He likes it. He invented it. His idea. It's great. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It's like nuclear power, really. And God says it's so powerful you got to keep it in the nuclear reactor called marriage. Fire is wonderful. It's beautiful. It gives light. gives warmth. It's nice to look at. You can cook food on it. You can warm a house. You can do all sorts of stuff. Keep it in the fireplace. Keep it in the oven. You get it out in the middle of the den floor and it burns the house down and kills people. And sex is the same way. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, the Apostle Paul writing to the young pastor, Timothy, who was a single guy, and he says, treat all Women like sisters. Young women like sisters. And here's the point. What can we do before marriage, right? I mean, that's, that, that question's got to be in there somewhere. I wonder how many times it was in there, okay? And I was asking the same thing. Like, you can do anything you do to your sister. So all the physical affection you would show to your sister. I'd tussle her hair, right? I might give her a little peck on the forehead. I might, you know, if you're Latin, you might even give her a little peck on the lips, right? I'll give her a good back rub. Give her a good bear hug. You know? She plays flag football. Maybe you'll slap her on the bottom of her. But the point is, right? It's, it's physical affection. It's not erotic. It's not sexual. And guys, biblically, if you can keep all the sexual affection, all the erotic touch totally out of a relationship, Number one, I think that's what the Bible is telling us to do. It'll just be better in the long run. And listen, we didn't do it perfect. I know it's hard. This is not about condemnation. This is about having the right goals. That's, that's one reason. Once you do get engaged, have a short engagement. This is a total side note, but it's so important. I'm, we got an 18-month engagement. That's insanity. Quote me on that to your mom. If you want to be serious about holiness and godliness and purity... Have like a two-month engagement. I'm serious as a heart attack. You can find a church and address and all that. 
That's not in the Bible, but I, that, that could help you if you'll listen to it, okay? Um, and listen, we won't do it tonight, but you can go read Proverbs chapter 5. There, there's a ver- Proverbs, the book of wisdom, where God commands men to be intoxicated with his wife's breast. That's in the Bible. The Song of Solomon. It's a whole book about basically getting lost and exploring one another's bodies. The Bible is a gigantic no to all types of sexuality. And I mean pornography, masturbation, hookups, making out, erotic back rubs, whatever. You, you, however you're trying to skirt the line, the Bible is a gigantic no to all of that outside of marriage. But then once you get married, it's a gigantic yes. It's like it's a free-for-all as long as it's consensual. Does that make sense? And it's just one man and one woman for the glory of God. And they agree. God's glorious. He knows what He's doing. Literally, it talks about being glued together. Listen, even modern neuroscience will show there are chemicals released in the brain when you have an orgasm. And part of what they're trying to do, those chemicals make you feel like, I want to latch onto this person forever. Hmm, I wonder what that's about. It's about, that's the way it's supposed to work in marriage. You feel like, I want to latch onto this person forever. Good, you're supposed to feel that way. But have any of you ever known maybe a girl that's dating a guy and maybe even the relationship gets bad or abusive or something like that and all her friends are trying to tell her to get out but she won't and she won't and she won't and they stay together. It just goes bad from worse. And sometimes you know what's really going on there is they've slept together. And she feels so much guilt and so much shame. It's like I've got to stay in this thing to save it and redeem it and somehow, even though he's beaten me. Again, i got stories like that. Multiple. Don't play with this fire, guys. Wait and keep it in the fireplace of marriage that God invented, okay? And then the purpose of marriage. The deepest purpose of marriage. At the human level, it's intimacy between one man, one woman for life. Best friendship. Naked and unashamed means this. It wasn't just talking about physical nudity. It meant that. It didn't mean less than that. It means more than that. It meant they had nothing to hide, nothing to fear. There was nothing between them. Literally nothing between them. Isn't that what you want in best friendship? I can tell her anything. He can tell me anything. We trust each other. We love each other. We tell our dreams. We tell our fears. It's all out there. It's open. It's oneness. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. That kind of intimacy and best friendship, letting it all hang out. Now, that worked great in the Garden of Eden when both people were perfect and they didn't have any other sin. Genesis chapter 3, sin comes in. First thing it does, ruin their marriage. They're trying to hide from each other with fig leaves. You're going to experience some of that in your dating relationship, in your marriage relationship, even in the best marriage relationships. So very quickly, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Because if you really want to have great dating, you really want to have a great marriage, you've got to understand the greater, deeper purpose of marriage. So Ephesians chapter 5, New Testament, Paul is giving some very practical advice to married couples. Basically, husbands, love and cherish your wife. Wash her with the water of the Word. Encourage her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Follow Him. Respect Him. Honor Him the way you would honor Christ. But then he gets to the very end, and I want you to see what he says. Ephesians chapter 5, skip down to verse 31. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see what he's doing there? He's quoting Genesis 2.24. So total side note. But all these people are like, don't listen to what the New Testament says. That was just for the Greco-Roman world, something that was happening at the church of Ephesus. That's moronic. Because Paul doesn't say anything about the Greco-Roman world. He says, let me go all the way back thousands of years ago to the Garden of Eden, the principle. One man, one woman for life. Then, now, forever. But then, the next verse is really crazy. This mystery is profound. And you're like, yeah, a man and woman becoming one, that's very profound. And he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See what he did there? He said, when God invented marriage and sex and romance and passion and best friendship and intimacy and all that stuff, that wasn't the main end. From the very beginning of creation, God knew sin was coming. God was trying to plant in the world a living parable of what it looks like for the Lord Jesus Christ to leave His throne above, come down to heaven, live the perfect life that we all should live, die the death we all deserve to die, rise again and save us. And when a husband loves a wife well and cherishes her well and leads her well and sacrifices for her well, He's a little picture of Jesus. And when a wife responds to her husband well, and she honors him and respects him and trusts him and follows him, she's a picture of how the church is supposed to respond to Jesus because of his salvation. Just think about this, guys. The Lord Jesus Christ on earth, how humble he was. Think about specifically the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's going to die for our sins, all his people's sins, our sexual sins, but all our sins. Our selfish sins, our impatient sins, all those kind of sins, our self-righteous sins. He was so overwhelmed. He literally said to his three best friends, will you guys please stay awake and pray with me because my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And you know what they did? They went and took another nap. But Jesus was being a picture of a perfect best friend. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. I'm willing to die for you. And I'm willing to share my weaknesses with you. I'm not going to always try to put my best foot forward and act like I all got it together. He's so humble and vulnerable. And guys, that's the kind of friends we need to be, the type of boyfriend and girlfriend. I'll be honest. I'm not going to hide and be fake. But I'm also willing to serve. And if you date that way and in the right healthy way, you'll end up having a marriage that for the most part will be like that. But even in the best marriages, there's going to be times where your spouse drives you crazy and you're going to get in fights and you're going to hurt each other. And there's going to be part of you that says, I want to bail out and even if I don't quit, I'm not going to be open anymore. I'm not going to be trusting anymore. I'm not going to be vulnerable anymore. And what will help you stay in it, keep loving, keep forgiving, keep being patient, Keep confessing your own sin to build a great marriage is if you're experiencing that in your personal relationship with Christ. That I can confess to Him. He loves me. He's gracious to me. He's kind to me. Out of the overflow of my personal intimacy with Christ, I can minister to my spouse. And I can even see them as a conduit for how Christ ministers to me. Does that make sense? So, super fast, three very practical applications and I'm done. Some of you may be asking, well, what if I'm going to be single my whole life? Because that does happen to some people, like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If intimacy with God is really your main goal, you'll be fine. I'm not saying it won't be hard, but you'll be fine. Second, what do you say? Basically, everything that you just said not do, I've already done it. And especially all the sexual stuff, and there's a lot of addiction. I feel God's power is enough to free you, and His mercy is enough to forgive you every stain and blemish, all the shame that comes with it, and to make you new. That's how powerful His blood is to get those kind of stains out. It's like you had never done any of it. And what if you're like, ah, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm trying to be godly, but it's not working out. Listen, you're not going to be perfect. And that's part of what God's grace does is it covers you so that you can fumble forward in faithfulness. And sometimes you might need to break up and take a break like we did, actually more than once. But you can have the freedom to make those decisions when you're saying, at the end of the day, I trust the goodness and mercy of God in my dating relationship because I've seen it so powerfully displayed in the cross. If He loved me that much... Sure, he's going to take care of this secondary need. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, I pray for every student hearing this. In the right time, in the right way, lead them to the right spouse. Produce godly marriages for your glory, for our joy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.